Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the big stories developing this week is that the coronavirus is mutating. And while we should be cautious, there's no cause for alarm just yet. A new variant of the virus has appeared in the UK, and officials say it could spread up to 70% faster. But luckily, the variant doesn't seem to be any more severe. Some have expressed concern that it might become resistant to the current vaccines rolling out, and scientists are looking into it right away. For more on what we know about this COVID variant, we'll speak to Apoorva Mandavili, reporter at The New York Times. It's not uncommon for viruses to mutate. That's just what viruses do. All viruses mutate. It's just a question of how quickly they do that and also where in the virus's sequence those mutations appear. So some parts of the virus are more important than others. Some parts are more critical for its function in terms of infecting human cells than others. And so in this case, one of the reasons that scientists are concerned about the mutations that have appeared in this new variant is that there are, first of all, at least 17 that they have seen, at least 17 mutations that they've seen from the previous version. And also, you know, many of those are on the spike protein, which is the part of the virus that dies onto human cells and infects them. So those things are quite concerning to scientists. And also the fact that so many of these mutations have appeared in a relatively short time in this one, one variant. Now, this variant is not only just in the UK. We're hearing that this one is also causing some spread in South Africa as well. But there's a lot of questions, as I said about this. You know, is it just the mutation that is making it spread faster? Is it human behavior as well? That is still an open question. So you're right that there is another version of this that's also in South Africa. It's not exactly the same variant. The, the, the version in South Africa has one mutation in common with the British one, which looks to be somewhat important. This number the British officials released yesterday saying the mutations are responsible for at least um, 70% more transmissibility of the variant, that is still really in question because it was a modeling exercise. So, you know, they can sort of predict that that might be what's happening. But in order to be really sure that these mutations are making the virus more transmissible, they would need to do some some experimental studies, some lab studies to show that these mutations do actually help the virus become, you know, more transmissible, to replicate faster or to attack cells faster. And that those experiments have not quite been done yet. Let's talk about some of these other mutations that we do know about. I guess one of the mutations is affecting antibody susceptibility. So the coronavirus has been pretty good at kind of avoiding detection by certain antibodies, certain antibody treatments, things like that. So these changes kind of help it in that way. But overall, it would really take years and years for the coronavirus to mutate so quickly that that would avoid some of these detections. That's the overall consensus from the scientists I've spoken with so far, is that it takes a very long time for a virus to be able to collect enough mutations that it would change enough to not be detected by our immune response anymore. 
one of the parts of concern about this British variant is that it does have this one particular set of changes. It's a, a double deletion, meaning two letters in its virus sequence are missing in this new variant. And that is associated with people becoming sort of less responsive to monoclonal antibodies. But Monoclonal antibodies, you know, by the name monoclonal, it's one antibody. And that's not what you have in the human body. The human body's immune response is extremely complex, extremely diverse. So it's one thing for a virus to become resistant to one antibody that you might give as a drug, but another thing to become resistant to the, the sort of multifarious immune response that your body produces. So scientists are feeling pretty reassured by the fact that this is not going to be collecting mutations at any rate that we need to worry that the vaccines that have been developed aren't going to work anymore. So what happens when it comes to the vaccines, as we've been saying, it would take years for the coronavirus to mutate enough to kind of change itself enough where, you know, maybe the vaccines wouldn't work. Or at that point, maybe you do like a yearly COVID vaccine where we tweak the vaccine just a little bit and and that's a benefit with these new vaccines that are coming out of Pfizer and Moderna, these mRNA vaccines. They're easily tweaked so to kind of adjust for some of these things. But we want the population, at least 60 percent of a population within about a year to kind of get this stuff. That way it minimizes the chances of the virus mutating more. So, you know, all the more reason to go get out and get your vaccines. Right, because the more that the virus is spread between people, the more chances it has to mutate. Every time the virus multiplies, it can become mutated. So we want to sort of minimize how much the virus is being spread between people and how often it has chances to mutate. So there is some pressure on governments to vaccinate their populations as quickly as possible, just to sort of keep the amount of virus that's spreading between people somewhat low. As you mentioned, you know, none of this is going to happen overnight. And, you know, at some point, if we start to notice, if scientists start to notice that the virus is starting to collect mutations that actually affect its ability to be recognized by the vaccines, then the mRNA vaccines that you mentioned, Pfizer and Moderna, both use this new technology called the mRNA technology. And that is relatively easy to adjust to a new variant of the virus. Uh, traditional vaccine technology. So that's the good news. And it's also important to remember that there are scientists really closely tracking how the virus is changing. So, you know, they're not caught unawares. The reason we even know about this, in a way, that's sort of good news that we're, we're hearing about this because scientists are keeping pretty close tabs on how the virus is changing as it goes through the world. Yeah. And, you know, some experts are calling for government agencies to set up these national systems to kind of constantly monitor this share that information as soon as we see variants. That way, we're just kind of on the up and up with all of this. As we've been saying, you know, it's cause for concern. We should monitor it. We need to watch out for it. But in the larger sense of it, we don't need to go back to square one and everybody needs to panic again. But, you know, in the meantime, we're seeing closures all over Europe. You know, different countries there are crafting different closure methods or barring flights from the UK, obviously just in this effort to, to limit that spread. Right. They're all being very cautious because we don't know enough yet. Um, as you said, it's not cause to panic, but scientists are concerned about this new variant in case it is more transmissible. 
these other countries are locking down their borders just to make sure that this variant doesn't get around everywhere. One of the things they're looking at, for example, is whether this particular variant infects kids a little bit more efficiently than the one that we've been used to seeing. Still doesn't mean that it's any more dangerous for kids or even for adults, but it might mean that it's um, it infects kids a little bit more efficiently and, and might pass through kids and to adults a little bit more efficiently. And if that's the case, then you know we do need to know those answers. So these countries are all just being extremely cautious, and that's not necessarily a bad thing right now. Definitely. We'll have to keep monitoring this and see how these things change. Apoorva Mondavili, reporter at The New York Times, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. In vaccine news, a CDC panel has made their recommendations on who is next in line to receive the two vaccines we have available so far. What is called Phase 1B will see first responders such as police and firefighters, other frontline workers like teachers and grocery workers, and also people over 75 get the vaccine. For more on the next phase of the vaccine rollout, we'll speak to Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. So this committee makes the decisions, makes the recommendations as to who should get the vaccine in what order. And they did exactly what you just said. They recommended that people who are on the front lines, who can't stay home and keep themselves safe, be in the next group of people. So as you said, teachers, grocery store clerks, firefighters, that sort of thing. And also people over 75. So again, the people at highest risk for poor outcomes if they catch COVID. And to put this all in perspective, you know, obviously we're doing this because doses of the vaccine are in limited capacity. This phase that we're talking about right now, phase 1B, the second phase, isn't supposed to start until February, right? I think that'll probably start sooner than that. So what they said today was 20 million doses in December. I think that will cover hospital workers and people in nursing homes. And then the next round will start at some point in January. We don't have a date yet. And there'll be 30 million doses available in January. So 30 million more people will be able to get vaccinated in January. And the 20 million who got vaccinated in December for the first time will be able to get their second shot in January. We've talked about this before. You know, states have the final say in who will get the vaccine next. These are just recommendations. But these are really difficult decisions and things to play out, things to go through on who should be next. And they make the recommendations at the local level. You know, a lot of people can be angry or maybe say, hey, you're leaving other people out, things like that. But just talk a little bit about how difficult some of these decisions could be. To me, one of the trickiest is prisoners, people who are behind bars. So obviously, you know, we want to protect upstanding citizens first, but there's been huge outbreaks in prisons around the country and their outcomes are much worse than they are in the general population. And also people from the public come into these prisons, prison guards, visitors, that sort of thing. So what happens in the prison doesn't necessarily stay in the prison. So the question is, when do you vaccinate them? Do you vaccinate them now as you vaccinate nursing home residents and other people in congregate settings and in group settings, or do you wait until later? I saw that correction workers are in this phase 1B. Are prisoners in that category as well? I think that's pretty much up to the states. I don't think they're saying you have to put them in one group or another. Some states have already begun in the first group, and other states are saying, no way, we don't want them that early. So it really is going to be a state-by-state -state decision there. The panel did also recommend the phase after that, phase 1C. And in there you get you know public health workers, food service workers, construction workers, media workers, and a few others. Those are people, again, who can't exclusively stay home, whose jobs take them not into a high-risk situation, but into a situation where they come into contact with other people. 
where do people get in line for these vaccines and prove that they are who they are, that they are one of these frontline workers? Do they go through their employers? Are they going through their healthcare providers? How do they get uh, in line for these? You know, I'm not sure that's entirely clear yet. It's very easy with this first round. You know, the hospital is going to vaccinate hospital workers. The nursing home is going to vaccinate its workers and its residents. Once you get into a broader population, I don't know, am I going to have to show my USA Today ID to get vaccinated? (laughs) Right, exactly. Right. And, you know, I should be able to go theoretically to the Walgreens down the street and get that. So could you sneak in early? It's possible that you could, certainly with the age requirements. So the next group is over 75. The group after that, 1C, is 65 to 74, so that you could use a driver's license to show your age. For people who have comorbidities, who have other illnesses, high-risk medical conditions, if you walk up to a pharmacist and say, I have diabetes, I need a shot, are they going to question that? It seems unlikely. It seems like there'll be a lot of trust involved. I did have a question about uh, the Pfizer vaccine because the National Institutes of Health is looking for people to study those that have severe allergic reactions to the Pfizer vaccine. Um, I know there was a couple cases in the UK on the first day of the rollout. There was a few cases that have happened here in the United States as well. So the NIH is looking to find people so they can study this to see what might be causing all of that. So that's kind of what they have to do when they see a problem is get other people, kind of put them at risk in order to understand the problem. It's scary. I'm not sure I would volunteer for that, but I think, you know, certainly they'll have EpiPens and everything necessary, excuse me, to help people if they get into a, a bad situation. Is it as simple as just giving somebody an EpiPen to get them out of their allergic reaction or is there a lot more that goes into that? That actually seems to be the solution. I mean, sometimes I think with one of the four people you just mentioned needed a a second EpiPen, a second shot. But in general, that solves the problem. But it's not fun, from what I understand, from people <laughs> right, exactly. who even themselves shot it a shot. It's quite unpleasant, yeah. and um, you know, probably takes you a couple of days to recover. So it's not like a sneeze. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a major medical situation. And they are going to be doing these things in medical settings. So we'll monitor all that and. We'll see how these rollouts of the vaccines continue to go in the U.S. Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. We know that the airline industry has been hurting throughout the entire pandemic, and they're looking to more testing as a way to make people feel safer while flying. What will that look like, though? Think testing sites at airports, adding results to passenger records, and offering flights only for tested passengers. While it may be a way to get more people flying again, some caution that the tests aren't always reliable, and fake negative test certificates are already making the rounds. For more on this, we'll speak to Scott McCartney, middle seat columnist at the Wall Street Journal. This is really a save-the-industry push by airlines and tourism destinations, airports, governments. You know, a lot of businesses are involved in this. And they really are desperate to restart travel. And certainly a lot of travelers are desperate to start going again. And so testing is seen as a way to make this happen. There's no real agreement yet on what the terms would be, if you will. A lot of places are requiring a PCR test 72 hours in advance. Some places say, no, it has to be five days in advance. In some locations, there has to also be a rapid test done at the airport. Italy is requiring both a rapid test when you depart and when you arrive. So there's no uniformity on that. And it's really unclear how much this really reduces the risk. 
It seems to reduce the risk, but certainly doesn't eliminate it. And Hawaii has been a good test case. Hawaii has pretty stringent testing requirements in place, and they've been able to reopen travel with uh, actually a, a reduction in cases in the state, reduction in hospitalizations in the state. So they think it's working. But other places Hawaii, have had some difficulty with it. Hawaii, just real quick, they do have very rigorous testing requirements, so much so that you have to get a specific kind of test. You have to do it with a certain company. And people that are getting to the airport with the improper credentials, I guess you can say, they're getting turned away even. But the lieutenant governor there, who is a doctor and has advised on a lot of this stuff, says that they think it's a great success. As, as you mentioned, they kind of reopened with numbers going down even. And they think that being really strict about where you get the test done, what lab processes it, they think that's been one of the keys to their success. Half the people, a lot of people have gotten caught by that requirement. About half of them have been turned away at the airport when they go to board a flight. And the other half have shown up in Hawaii and not been allowed to enter unless they they quarantine. And they've been very strict about their quarantining. They monitor you at a hotel and things like that. You know, a lot of people are, they're getting tested at reputable labs. They're just not on Hawaii's approved list. (laughs) But I think the point for Hawaii is there's a lot of stuff out there. And if a test isn't done properly, you take the sample incorrectly, you get a bad result. And there are at-home tests. There are all kinds of different ways to get tested. And so there are even fake test results you can buy now. Yeah, that's so crazy. There were seven people arrested at the Paris airport selling fake negative COVID test results. So I think if you're trying to protect the population and you're going to allow people to avoid quarantining with test results, you better make sure that the test results are not only accurate, but trustworthy. Yeah, those fake negative test results were being sold to travelers from about $182 to $365. So, I mean, those are getting up there, rivaling some ticket prices, I would assume. Um, Yeah, no, it's not cheap at all. (laughs) Uh, Some of the other things that airlines are trying to do is roll out apps also, which will basically say your test came back negative. That way everybody knows it. You can kind of show it. They're trying to work through some privacy issues with that. And certain airlines are also offering flights for people specifically that were tested. And if you don't want to be tested or something like that, they'll move you to another flight. The app thing is interesting. Um, There's, you know, there's privacy concerns with it. If you're going to use it, you have to agree to sort of waive privacy requirements. But it is a way to sort of get the information quickly, easily into your passenger file. The COVID tested flights are interesting. One of the keys to all of this is there, there was a flight from Dubai to Auckland, New Zealand, which has been studied extensively by health authorities because there were two people on board who probably were infected before the flight, but they had tested negative with the PCR test. And, you know, they may have been infected after they took the test, but before they got on the flight. And they infected, uh, there were five others who got infected, and they were all sitting within two rows of each other on the flight. So great concern about this. A lot of information about it because New Zealand has mandatory quarantine in a government-run facility for two weeks. So they could easily contact trace these people. And what it showed was, you know, negative test results do not mean that you're going to have a flight that's free of the virus. Scott McCartney, middle seat columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. 
Thanks for having me, Oscar. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.